calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Yay! We are back, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, you guys. They don't have to whistle. They really love me. They whistle and everything. It's so cute. Well, it's so great to be back with you on the podcast, darling. We we had a, a great episode last week about Clarion West and new writers just getting into the field. And, and that was really great. I'm so excited about our guest today. Showrunner, screenwriter, Chao Hadari Coker. So this is, I can't wait to chop it up. You can see we're going to be off to a great start. But before we really get into our topic, let's talk about what's going on. Okay, I could just, you know, I could always just listen to that all day. So, <laughs> so much is happening. We we made it. We made it to our first picket last week. Uh, first well, the of all, writers' guild is on strike. The Writers Guild of America, oh, as, WTA. As, as we speak, this the Writers Guild is on strike. So we went out and picketed. Yes, we did, and it's it's. We live in San Bernardino County, and we're nowhere near any of the studios that are being picketed. So. Between that and the fact that I'm also teaching at UCLA, screenwriting is still a part-time job for, for both of us, actually. We're not able to go every day, but I'm looking forward to going again this week. And it was, you know, I hate to use the word fun because the issue at hand is not fun at all. But 
getting on a picket line with like-minded people with their clever signs, seeing my friend Melody Cooper, who's a screenwriter and director. And, and also we, we met an, an actor on the line who I'll have to remember what his name. I know his name. It's not coming to me right this second. But Steve, what did you think about the picket line? Well, you know, it's not, it's not the kind of thing that you want to do. No. It's the kind of thing that you need to do. Yes. And so my feeling about it was that it's all fun and games right now. And hopefully we'll be able to keep that same sense of unity and community. Greg Grunberg, I believe. That was it. I was about to say Greg Grunberg, who was on Heroes and Alias and Star Wars, a couple of Star Wars movies. So one of those familiar faces you've seen over and over again, and you're like, yes. oh, I, I know that guy. But in any case, what was most important, I'm not just saying I'm fangirling over meeting him, it was this the Screen Actors Guild. It was yes. also out on well, the Well, one of the line. issues, you know, so certainly they understand that in general, the studios would love to break the unions, not because studios are evil, but because yeah, all living things try to grab everything for themselves. That's just what living things do. And the only organizations that are capable of pushing back against them are things like unions. Otherwise, they would take us as individuals. You know, Tom Cruise you know, among actors would still be getting the mega millions, but the average actor would get lowballed out of existence. So the same thing is going to be true with, with the writers, except that right now with the artificial intelligence, there is the concern about the replacement of images, the replacement of actors, the replacement of writers. You know, I think that the executives should be worried about replacing them. Um, mm-hmm. But those kinds of issues are on the table. And I think that it is important to discuss them. I don't know whether or not it's actually, you know, whether or not it's going to be an earth-shaking danger, but there is the potential. It could be earth-shakingly dangerous. And one of the first ways it's going to show up is people out of work. You know, oh, my gosh, yes. That's, that is going to happen. That has already happened. It's already affecting, affecting employment, just like automation did, just like industrialization did. So each of these things needs to be addressed seriously. And so there is that. There's also the sharing of revenues from streaming services. We want to them to open the books so we can see exactly what's going on. They, of course, want to keep the books closed. Yeah, so no idea how it. many people have watched it, how many people have streamed it, and then people showing checks for pennies as their residuals, when residuals traditionally have been what get actors, really anyone involved in a production, through the times when they're not working as much. And when you can see these streaming services putting out $100 million for this movie, $300 million for that series, clearly their capitalization is is just fine. Things are going fine, but they don't want us to know what is going on in that arena. And as far as I'm concerned, it would be foolish of us not to assume that that is out of positive intentions. It would be foolish to, uh, to assume that. That it's not out of positive intentions? No, no, no. It would be foolish to assume that it is out of positive intentions. Oh, out of, okay. I was about yeah. to say, who are you? Uh, no, no. Who no, hired I mean, you? Who are you working that, for? No. But even if it is in positive attention, intentions, the more positive their intentions are, the more they should understand why it is legitimate for us to be concerned. That when you really, when you really care about someone and you identify with them, you understand that it is perfectly reasonable for them to feel afraid, for them to feel uncomfortable, and you want transparency. You know, if I want my wife 
to feel totally comfortable trusting me, then she can look through my email and my phone and everything else at any time. She can track me anywhere I go. I don't care because I want her to feel that comfort. When people start concealing what they're doing, it is foolish to assume they're doing it for your benefit. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I want to just shout out one of my favorite old school horror actors, Boris Karloff. That's right. Boris Karloff, in my fact, favorite let's actor go ahead and because Boris Karloff being asked to work hellish hours on the set of Frankenstein, because on top of many, many, many hours he had to spend in makeup, then he had to shoot his scenes. And also the set wasn't super safe. So he filed a complaint. He was one of the either, in fact, 25 hour shoot. I'm assuming it was outside of the span of an entire day since there are only 24 hours in a day. But as early as 1931, he filed a complaint about a 25-hour shoot with the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. So he was one of the co-founders of the Screen Actors Guild, which is great because horror has been in the house since the very beginning. That's right. That's right. The very beginning. Horror has been showing up to help make it a better world for everybody. Now... You know, me, what I'm always going to emphasize is what I'm always going to emphasize is the question of what can an individual do in their own individual life in order to in order to thrive. It is my belief that, yes, you have an obligation to operate within political structures and systems, but that the people who can be leaders are also they don't need the organizations that they create. They could have done okay by themselves. So what we're doing right now, if we want to, you know, we, we have to take care of our family. We have to take care of ourselves if we're also going to support the movements. So how are you, what are you doing right now, sweetheart? You know, just, just what's going on in your life? And then talk well, about on, on, on the picket line, very happy to see the solidarity, solidarity across several unions. Some people think that'll make it worse. I hope it'll actually make this go more quickly. One note I want to make, you know, because they are just going to figure not not why. Oh, just, you know, just speculation, just speculation among my friend. I don't want to name names. That means she's not on the record. What position are these people in? She's a writer. Okay. She's she's just a writer. She just just feels like there's a possibility it might make things worse. The more units jump in because it will make them dig in even more because potentially they could lose even more power, even more so than money. Some people feel is the issue is that they don't want to let go of the power. I don't know. I think the more people who join in, the faster it's over for everybody. But we shall see. I just do want to point out, I know last time there was a strike, I think it was 2007, 2008. That was one of the last times we were starting to get some traction in in Hollywood. And it definitely did set us back. And while I'm hopeful that we won't be set back Uh in the same way this time. Oh, look, we have a special guest arriving in the house. Welcome. Hey, how are you? What's going on? It's great. We were just... It's good to see you. So glad you could make it. Very good to see you. Thank you for doing this, by the way. So this is actually great timing because we do a segment in the beginning of the podcast called What's Going On. First of all, just thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I mean, it's a really tense time, you know, and so a lot's going on for all of us. But at the same time, you know, it's just great just to see friends 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It's wonderful to see you, Chad. To to be able to just kind of talk about, you know, something that we all love, you know, and not just the business and the jeopardization of business, but just writing itself. Yes, Yes. absolutely. So why don't you give give us about two minutes, two, three minutes to wrap up what we're talking about, what we're doing here, and then we will go right into you. Your intro. Great. All right. So while you do that, I'm going to go get a drink. I'm going to mute myself. Yeah, get a drink. We appreciate you. Appreciate you. Okay. So, 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 yeah, I see you focus on what's going on there. My focus is on taking care of the family, is on where where can I work? In other words, there are books and articles and things like this that have nothing to do with the strike. And I put my creativity in there. And then I have to exercise. I have to to be sure that I'm, I'm keeping sane in the midst of it. And I, you know, success is the progressive realization of a worthy goal. So if I'm not doing something that is pushing my life forward, I feel vaguely uncomfortable. I'm not, you know, I'm not comfortable, you know, not moving forward. And this is, I think, is hard for a lot of the writers in the field because they, they cannot write for the screen. Right. Period of time. And so the part of themselves that identifies themselves as writers is literally stymied there. So I'm hoping that they're writing short stories, they're writing books, they're writing spec scripts, stuff just for themselves. I even encourage people, encourage people, maybe this is a time to make your short. You know what I mean? Like that little short script you have sitting in a drawer that, that you can't sell or wouldn't even try to sell anywhere. Get your friends together, shoot it. Just, I mean, if that's something you want, if you want a movie, shoot a movie because you can't work in your writer's room. You can't, you can't get notes from your executive on whatever your paid project is. So I have to say, I have been writing like a fiend on a spec script that I, is just so exciting for me to work on. And I don't feel any pressure because the only deadline is for me. And I'm having a blast and honey, like you, it's the action. Now for some of you, the action may not be writing because you don't have spec scripts, you know, and and I get that or whatever it is that you do, but I, I cannot tread water when I'm under stress. Right. It's, it, I will sink. <laughs> so well, moving forward is imperative. That, that people who are stressed emotionally make bad decisions. Yes. Uh, Netflix is doing something that I consider to be kind of dirty. Mm. And what they did was they have publicized the fact that in September, they're going to have an open call for ideas, a mass, mm. a mass thing. And I think that the implication is very clear. If the Writers Guild strike is not handled by September, we're going to hire scabs and we're going to keep going. And the way to deal with that fear, because they're trying to bring us to the table at, at knockdown rates, is to is to be sure that you can see how you're going to be happy and your family is going to be okay no matter what. That, you're, right. that you've got a variety of different ways for you to express yourself and to earn the money that you need to protect your clan. So, you know, for every conceivable reason, finding ways to express yourself, to stay healthy, to protect the people that you love and protect the part of you that is a creative artist cannot be in the hands of people who have a financial interest in in cutting you down. You, you right. have that control. You can rent yourself to the studios, but you cannot sell yourself. These are not right. Reasons, okay. So right. that's all I wanted to say, because I, I, I really want to get to Cheo. Oh, my God. We have such a great guest today. I mean, our guest today is Cheo Hadari Coker. Yes. And this is from the Stanford website. So they're putting themselves first. <laughs> I tell you your business, Cheo, that uh, you were in their class in 1994. 
Yeah. But anyway, a former hip hop journalist who's written for the Los Angeles Times, Vibe, Span Premier, I mean, a whole bunch of magazines, GQ.com. Really, a lot of you know him as the executive producer, showrunner of Marvel's Luke Cage, which broke the internet. That's the last time we talked to you, Chao, was right after Luke Cage broke the internet. Other television credits include Ray Donovan, NCIS, LA, Almost Human, and Southland, where his season four Southland episode, God's Work, won him an NAACP Image Award. Hey, for that. Feature film co-credits include Notorious, Low Riders, and a story by credit for Creed II, which I did not know about, as well as uncredited work, but not unheralded, apparently. I'm straight out of Compton and all eyes on me. He's based in Seattle with his wife, Dr. Tumani Rucker-Coker, and their three children. Welcome to the studio, Cheo Hadari-Coker. So the 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 enthusiastic applause, like the, the enthusiastic <laughs> applause. Actually, I love. You know, it actually makes me feel like I'm in front of a studio audience. Which you is cool. are. You yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. Studio this, audience. You know, this is friendly. <laughs> There's no gotchas here. You know, anything that you say that you decide, oh, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Just let us know, and that you know, it's how. Otherwise. We're just friends talking, and our listeners just like feeling like they're a fly on the wall while we're having a friendly conversation between people who enjoy each other's company. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, people have described it as like a kitchen table visit that they just get to listen to as we talk about those mm-hmm. things that we care about so much. And we'd like to start by talking about your fantastic career, Cheo, okay. because this is not an easy industry to thrive in. How did you and get in? How did, what was your first... T- film, television, you know, visual media credit. How did, how did that happen? Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you know, it's kind of a long and winding road. So if you go all the way back, I was a journalist for the Los Angeles Times. And this was in the early 90s because I started my career as a journalist while I was still in the Stanford undergrad. I like literally was like skipping classes and flying down to interview Ice Cube, <laughs> you know. Oh, wow. You know, I basically had this kind of almost famous kind of thing happening where I was writing for East Coast publications. And a lot of people thought that they were sending, you know, records and things or publicity. People thought they were sending records probably to somebody that lived in San Francisco. And actually it was coming to my dorm room, you know, and that's what I was doing was I was just really Early on, I was I was kind of part of that second wave, like myself, Rob Marriott, you know, Sasha Jenkins, Elliot Wilson, Karen Good, Dream Hampton, like, you know, a, a number of us w- were really starting to really kind of, and there are a lot of names I'm leaving out, but I'm not dissing anybody, it's off the top of my head, 
you know, a lot of us that were starting to expand into careers covering hip hop. Perfect example is, you know, a really prominent producer now, Mimi, Mimi Valdez, who works with Pharrell and works with Mahershala Ali, was one of the producers on Dope. I was a former editor-in-chief of Vibe. When I first met Mimi, she was the assistant to Alan Light at Vibe. You know, so all of us started basically because of our love of hip-hop culture and protecting the culture. And so the way that that led to me screenwriting, it's a couple of things. Initially, I was represented by Michael Goldman, who still represents Nick Cannon. So I've known Nick from the time he was like, I want to say 15 years old. Because Mm -hmm. at one point, Mike had myself, Nick, Cannon, he had, you know, Keenan, both Keenan and Kel. You know, I think he still represents Keenan Thompson, um, you know, mm-hmm. of Saturday Night Live fame. Yeah. But back then, you know, was part of the whole, you know, Tolan Robbins crew because Michael, you know, Brian Robbins and Mike Tolan. Brian Robbins, now the current president of, of Paramount, but back then was, you know, coming off head of the class and was, was a burgeoning director at the time. And Mike Tolan, who was one of the producers of The Last Dance, but also has always kind of been in sports. They decided to basically form a management company and at the same time, try to get as many talented up and coming writers, actors together. Mike Goldman from ICM kind of came over and said, look, we've read your articles. We feel like you have potential as somebody that could make this transition into screenwriting. And, you know, the whole thing was like I was a journalist. I was trying, but then I didn't really know what to do, how to do it. I think you know, what happened? A couple of things happened. I was assigned an episode of, of Cousin Skeeter, which was kind of like this puppet show that they were doing for, for, for Nickelodeon. And okay. I didn't really take it seriously. I was trying to figure out a lot of things in my life at the time. Ultimately, when I had basically quit the LA Times and I had started working on this screenplay called Flow about the hip hop industry with my uncle, Richard Wesley, this is on spec. Rich got busy you know, working, I think, on Mandela de Klerk. Um, I moved back home because I was basically just like trying to figure my life out. This was me leaving the LA Times. And then I thought that I was doing this cousin Skeeter and it said, hey, we never heard back from you. So we moved on. And I realized at this one moment, like, if I don't take this seriously, if I don't really get down and take charge of myself and what's happening, I'm going to look up and I'm not going to be anywhere. And so that's what I did was I, I just basically forced myself, you know, my uncle and I had, had written 50 pages of, of the screenplay together. And then I wrote the rest of the script I, because it became my way of saying, OK, we started here. He got busy. I'm taking this seriously. So I'm going to push myself through the rest of, of the script based on the cards that we came up with together. I completed I, I think I wrote another like 100 no, I want to say another 100, 100 pages, way over. But I was just trying to find my voice and kind of figure this thing out. Rich really liked what I did. And then we came together and edited it and basically made it between the two of us, the screenplay that became Flow. I had interviewed John Singleton around the time that he was working on Rosewood for Vibe. And we had become really good friends. And John was in Miami. And this was, this was like back in the day where like, you know, he was he, he probably had some excuse to some just to see somebody in New York. He's like, yo, if I come up like in, in we let me read it. And if I like it, I'll, I'll let you know. And so he literally came to my uncle's living room in Montclair, New Jersey, read flow, loved it, attached himself to it. And then my management and I see him at the time were like it went from being like, OK, 
it's great that you're working on this thing. Who knows? To once I had John attached, it was like, oh my God, we want to go out to Oliver Stone. We want to go out to all these different names. I'm like, no, John is the person that wanted this and likes what we, what we've done. Let's figure this out. And so we ended up selling it to New to New Line. Um, and I want to say November 12th. It was announced in Variety on November 12th of 1998. Not important wow. enough to remember the date or anything. Yeah. So, and yeah. I want to just mention this: this story is so extraordinary on so many levels. A, absolutely. Once you get that director attached, it is a whole different conversation that hasn't changed. Yeah. B, I'm so sorry we lost John Singleton, and of course, just hearing his name makes me sad. He should yeah. still be here, and, and also the, the 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 foresight and vision of management to take journalists and say, hey, we want to mold you and help you get into the industry. That is so unusual. Well, look, I'm, <laughs> seeing is- some, I'm seeing something else that, that is important. What's necessary, I think, to help people get into, into any occupation is what are the lowest steps? And the lowest steps might be doing interviews of people who are in the industry that you want to be in for a relatively low-level magazine that doesn't necessarily pay a whole lot, so you they're, they're willing to accept new voices. You work your way up to the higher levels of magazines that have access to more people, and you meet people. You become friends with John Singleton. You interview Ice Cube. You start demystifying the business because they're going to tell you things that have to do with their past, and you find your way in. What? Well, well, go, go ahead. Well, no, I, I want to because you actually reminded me of something. I think probably the most pivotal moment that I'm leaving out was when John and I first started hanging out. This is this is kind of strangely ironic. Okay, the movie Get on the Bus came out, right? And Get on the Bus was notable because Spike Lee. It was one of the first movies, one of the only movies in the history of Hollywood at, at its level where it was completely independently black financed. And that was kind of the point. It was about the Million Man March. And so Spike, you know, went to independent black black financiers to independently finance his movie about the Million Man March. The writer of that movie was Reggie Rock Bifewood, who Mm. years later I would end up sharing credit with quite proudly on Notorious. Um, Mm. We we both share screenplay credit. But, you know, this was before even knowing who he was or any of that. So we went to go see it at the Cinerama Dome. It was me. It was John. And then when we came out of the movie, we ran into Reggie Hudlin, we ran into Rusty Cundiff, mm-hmm. and we ran into Melvin, no, sorry, Mario Van Peebles. And so we were just, t- you know, we were just out there just having this conversation, basically in the lobby on Sunset Boulevard, you know, outside, outside the Cinerama Dome, of just about all the possibilities of what that film could be and, and just that. And so it just extended into Mario saying, hey, why don't, you, why, why don't everybody just come up to the house? And we just went up to his house and just as film geeks, we were just sitting up all night long, just kind of talking about films, what movies everybody wanted to make, that kind of thing. And it got to, we were making so much noise, you know, Melvin Van Peebles came downstairs. So in Melvin, of course, the director of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and everything else. Picked up the black exploitation era. Just, 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 just kind of came down. And it was just became historic at that point because you got Melvin, you got Mario. We're just sitting in the kitchen. All of us are talking and having fun. And I went home that night. You know, I got home. I lived in this little apartment in North Hollywood. By the time I got home, I mean, it must have been like 7 a.m., right? And I was just so jazzed by just being around all that energy. I just thought to myself, do I want to spend the rest of the next 10 or 15 years following and chronicling 
the lives of people my age or just a little bit older that are actually following their dreams? Or do I want to get on the other end and, you know, try something else and try this different thing? And soon after that is, is when I put in my, my final notice at the LA Times and, 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 just, and just said, like, you know, I want to try it. And it was, oh, my God, it was tough. It was tough It's as tough hell. to quit a job when you don't have the next gig lined up, for sure. That's yeah. when you are and really I, and I, 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 was, I, I mean, I wasn't really smart about it. I mean, you know, like, I remember, like, <laughs> I'm laughing now. I remember the lights and the, the electricity and the one other bill, like, literally cut off the same day. Like, mm. I had to basically refigure things out. I phone calls that were that were getting returned were not returned at the same speed because I was no longer Che Odari Coke with the LA Times. It, you know, uh, I was just me. And you, you you learned that lesson too. And that was kind of what prompted me to say, you know what, as I'm really trying to figure this out and was going through a breakup, all, a bunch of other stuff happened, but I, it just made me figure out, you know what, let me really try to figure out what's going on with me. Let's let me figure out what's going on with this half a screenplay that, you know, I've been working on. And then after having all these things happen, like, let me just figure this whole thing out. And then, you know, you, but you're right. It's like when you're around people that are going in the same direction, you know, it helps you spur yourself on. I mean, I think Chuck D had a song once, you know, if I can't change the people around me, I change the people around me. Right. You know. Absolutely. And and, and that's and that's really an important thing. It's the fastest way to either succeed or fail is to be with either the right group or the wrong group. I just you've had. I was just going to say you've you've had such a great and long career, Chao, because this is going back a minute. You're talking about what has been. I'm I'm getting old. (laughs) Well, but what's the personal key to your staying power? I don't mean just in this life. I mean, in this industry where the phone keeps ringing, where the jobs keep coming. What is, has been your personal key for that staying power? A couple of things, honestly. For one, you can only control what you can control. And the only thing that you can control is the quality of the words as they hit the page. That's the only thing you can really control. Yes. And you learn very quickly Once you have kids that you really thought that, you know, that you didn't have any time before you had kids. Once you have kids, like you realize that time is not your own time, not only not on your side, but like you really don't. You have to figure out you have to appreciate the time that you do have and how you manage that time when it comes to your writing and that you have to be as disciplined with your writing as anything else. You know, people always ask me like I'll do panels and someone will, you know, always raise their hand and say, like, how do I become a writer or do I need a certain software or they talk about all these different things. And I say, look, it's like, you know, what you really need is like, what, a $45, $50 folding table from Staples, which is, which is like, I, I used to write on, on stuff like that for years. Some people like to write by hand. Some people use a computer. You know, I, I like, you know, lamps that kind of, you know, maybe a hundred dollar lamp that, that, that can simulate daylight. And then, you know, I spend about, or I spent about $1,200 on my chair. And they're like, well, why do you spend so much money on your chair? I'm like, because you have to sit in that motherfucker eight, nine, 10, 14, 15 hours sometimes in order to get things done. And if you're not comfortable, if you haven't built your own, your own space, your own dojo, your little piece of or corner of real estate in your apartment or whatever you or your house, or whatever you're doing, it's not going to get done for one. So you have to do that. And also, Little pockets of ideas are just as valuable as long pockets of time. 
Sometimes you're only going to get five. Sometimes you're only going to get five, 10, 20 minutes, three minutes. And so you have to learn how to, okay, when you have a, a, a snippet of an idea, write it down. Like, so one of the tricks I, I, I use or, you know, or that you can use is if you have blank note cards and you just get a, a semblance of an idea, write it down, put it in the shoebox. And then at the end of the couple of days or weeks, see what's in the shoebox, because those little pieces will help you get started faster. Uh, for me, like, you know, if you look at my current office at both this and I've seen set up at home, my desks are whiteboards. I've got these these kindergartner oh. whiteboard desks. Oh, Steve's in love that, now. That, 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 <laughs> I, that I, I lifted that I, I've lifted up, you know, so that they're adult sized. Yeah. You know, where did you get them? On Amazon. On Amazon. Would you send me a, would you send us a link to those desks? Absolutely. To get one. <laughs> I knew it. As soon as he saw that, yeah. his eyes lit up. Well, like I mean, really, the, the thing is, is, you know, I, I learned how to whiteboard, of course, you know, all my time in television and in writer's rooms. And, but what happens is when you have to get up to the board sometimes, you know, I'm getting older, like you, you feel it in your knees if you're standing up. And so just having it here. So I'll write down something. I'll take a photo of it. And that becomes my way of, of, of preserving it and saving it for later, you know, and it's just you finding a whiteboard in the background there. Yeah. 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 With yeah. The magnetic cards on it. But I, I like your idea even better. Yeah. And just finding ways to kind of just delineate the process. Two things have taught me a lot about writing and they're not writing related marathons and boxing, uh-huh. you know, um, because I'm actually getting ready to run my second marathon. I'm, I'm running the, um, the Cleveland Marathon on Sunday. I ran my first the Honolulu Marathon the day before my 50th birthday. And the thing about running a marathon is just, it's the discipline of training. And it's also just running your own race. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to train for and run because it's isolating. But at the same time, it's communal because once you've run a marathon, you enter a fraternity sorority of people that have done it. And and nobody, everyone, if you actually finished it, you actually got, you know, my my daughter calls this set of my my participation medal, but I'm 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 the proudest of this of of, I'm I'm as proud of this as any of any of my other of, of anything else. But the thing about it is is that you know you it does not matter ultimately how fast you run it. It's that you complete it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to be able to train for it, you know, for 26.2. And the reason I, I, you know, if I ever do another production company, I'm going to call it point two because the 26 miles, you don't really bother you, but that point two is one of the hardest things you've ever done mm. because you see the finish line and it's, and you just, you want to give out, but you got to keep going. Cause now everyone's looking at you. You don't want to crawl across the finish line, but the training process, you learn how you learn stamina, you learn how to take the pain, you learn at the same time how to breathe, you learn how to get through your miles. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. And it's never easy, but it gets easier. And you learn. And writing is the same way. It's you something that you have to too. do. What did you yeah. learn from boxing? Well, boxing is like, it's interesting because, I mean, you got you got jab, cross, hook. You know, you, there are only about three or four different, like, like maybe six different punches, right? Right. And then at the same time, you also have, you know, different combinations, you know, one, one, two, like, you know, all, all that stuff. So you can learn the rudiments of boxing probably in, in an hour or a day, you know? 
But are you willing to go through the training? Are you willing to get up at four or five in the morning and do your five miles of running and then do an hour and a half or two hours in the gym and then do all those things in a very disciplined manner and spar in order to get to the point when you can actually fight? Yes. And it's the same reason that I freely give advice on Twitter about writing and everything else. People are like, why do you give that shit away for free? And the reason I give it away for free is because 99.9% people aren't going to do it. Right. So I think another reason you do it is that the people who will do it are your tribe. You yeah. empathize with them because they are they are where you were. And you remember right. what it was like for people to reach out to you and give to you. And to the degree that we love our mentors and want to be like our mentors, part of what our mentors did was be generous with us. Yeah. You know, so, you know, yeah, I mean, right. most people aren't yeah. going to go through that pain and discipline. They're just not. Well, well that and there's also here's the thing. The, the, the other thing that they never tell you is that whether you're writing a script for free or whether you're writing it for an embarrassing amount of money. The pain and the process is exactly the same. Mm. And it's the same with boxers, you know, whether they're club boxers that get that one title shot and then they move up the ranks and then they're making a lot of money for doing the same thing. It hurts every single time. you right. got to get punched. There's got to be a better way to earn a living than getting punched in the face. And writing is the same thing. And the thing is, it's like people are like, oh, I want to be a showrunner. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I'm like, well, that's great. But like, you know, I also know that I also know what it feels like to know, to look at the floor and realize, okay, if I sleep on the floor and on my desk rather than going to bed, it's going to be easier for me to get up after an hour and a half than it is going to be if I actually go to bed and wake up sluggish because I'm on a deadline that because I've got actors waiting that cannot be missed, you know? And so the pain is always the same. So you, you're not really writing for the, if you really do this, it's not about the money. The money is important. Absolutely. But what makes you write, what you're able to pull out of yourself, what you're able to see realized from seeing your words read or performed, that has to come from somewhere else. Because if you're only doing it for the money, that's going to go away. It's either going to be fleeting or as soon as it goes away, then you'll move on to something else. And the thing that I've realized is that I have to be interested in what I'm doing. And that's kind of, you know, it's the gift and the curse because people realize that if I'm interested in something, I'll do it. I don't really think about the money. I worry about how to get paid later, you know, because sometimes it's if you're only thinking about the money, you're going to block yourself from the opportunity for not only a bigger opportunity, but at the same time, what you'll learn from the from the process of writing. You're also blocking yourself from that if you just say, oh, well, they're not paying me, so I'm not doing it, you know, mm. Because so much you, you, you grow so much with every different project, like every challenge is the same. When you go through the outlining of a project, when, when you are thinking about how to conceive something, all that's really an important part of, of the entire thing. I mean, writing the dialogue and all that kind of stuff but as a screenwriter, that, that's just icing on the cake. You know, that, that, that's the fun part. Yeah. It's the other stuff that is just as important. I find outlining is incredibly important because if you don't outline, then you have no idea what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you have the time to free write and free associate, some people can do that. Like I'm just not one of those people. You know, I, I've just learned the hard way that the best thing for me to do is to slow things down on a granular level, 
really kind of get an, a script. Of, I do what's called a script, bit, which is kind of a combination of treatment, but also with a little more dialogue so that when mm-hmm. I'm actually sitting down and get to flow state, it just moves faster, you know? I'm working on one of those right now. Yes, absolutely. That yeah. script meant. I didn't know what to call it, but that's exactly what I'm working when on. When I'm writing a book, I always do a script first, and then I turn yeah. the script because it allows me to test all aspects of the story, the, the plot, the, the characterization, and dialogue without worrying about the prose. So I will go from index cards, just writing down ideas, to an outline, to a treatment, and then at some point in the treatment, characters start speaking. And so, mm-hmm. you know, and I just, I let them start talking. And at that point, I put it over into, I go from Google Docs into a screenwriting program, like, like Writer Duet. And I just let the, the characters speak to me. And, and then every day, it's just take the low hanging fruit. What do they want to talk to me about today? What do they want to talk? And if I've done that earlier work properly, then what they say to me is honest. And as they begin to reveal themselves, sometimes they show me that some of the things I thought were true about them and about the situation were not true. And I have to go and do that. So it's moving back and forth between flow and structure, between different Mm -hmm. levels of it, all of it to the delight of the little boy I was who first started writing stories when I was five or six. That kid doesn't care about money. That kid wants to have fun. What can, how can I have fun with this? How can I learn with this? And that's, it seems to me that that's what you're talking about. You're asking if money, if you were a billionaire, what would you want to mm-hmm. write about? You'd still be writing, right. but what would you be writing? And right. the things that you would write if you were a billionaire are the things that you're going to be the most successful at and will be the most remunerative. But the primary thing is, does your heart have a home in this script, in this story? Mm-hmm. Can you find a way to insert yourself? T- to not if you're that's even one of that the- than I am. No, that's one of the things that that I love to do is to set myself up so that I'm working on projects all the time that I would do for free. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's hard to find that. And Chayo, you know, from when you quit your job and you're like, Hollywood, here I come. Hollywood does not come when you call. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, when you need the money the most, Hollywood is the least likely to have your back, right? It's, it's yeah. So there's this, this this irony about it that you almost have to forget about the money in order to create situations where you will make that money. That's what came yeah. to mind to me as you were talking. Yeah, that's the, the dog and the cat. Dogs come when you call. Cats wait until you're busy and then curl up on your desk. So a lot of success in life is you got to be busy doing the thing you're doing. That's when the cat will come and, and, and curl up with you. I I mean, perfect example was there was a screenplay that I did for Antoine Fuqua called Greenlight. And it was the kind of thing where it was just like I got a little bit of money, but it wasn't like a crazy amount. It was really early in my career. And, you know, I worked hard on that thing and it didn't really go anywhere. But it was writing that screenplay that ultimately that became the sample that Ann Bitterman read when she was trying to put together an expanded writer's room for Southland season two. Mm-hmm. And it was the thing that wasn't, you know, the quote unquote big screenplay that that's the thing that put me on. And you never know what sample, which thing that you have that's going to spark for someone else. So it's all worthwhile. It uh, is. You know, it's and then it's something that like I, I definitely particularly as we're going through what's happening right now with the strike, the thing that I would remind people of, yes, just because pencils are down does not mean that pencils shouldn't be sharpened. And so you have to find ways during the day, either before or after to write. And I don't mean working on a spec. I don't mean doing anything else. I mean, like, you just have to kind of keep 
things going so that you're sharp. Yeah. Because at some point, this thing will end. And the last thing you want to do with this thing ending is exhausting as it's going to be. You don't want to not only be exhausted, but then be so spent that you're unable to maneuver um, once things are over. Because people are, are, are you know, it's, it's no different than, than when there's like occasionally professional athletes strike. Like you still got to train. That's because right, yes. the, the, the second it's over, you got to play, you know, and if you fall, if you fall out of shape because, you know, perfect example, like every morning, 530 a.m., Colin Kaepernick is somewhere throwing bombs. Right. You know, it, and it, Spike Lee's documentary is coming out. But like and people are like, well, well, it's over. Like, why is he still, you know, training? And it's because he loves football. He loves being a quarterback. And despite all the things that have blocked him from doing that. He stays prepared because ultimately he's, I think he's a month younger than, you know, Matthew Stafford. And so at some point, the same way as, as what happened with Ali, he's going to play somewhere at some point. Yes. And, you he's, know? Not and, getting, and he's not getting injured out there either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's easier to stay in shape than it is to get in shape. Absolutely. It's true about your mind. You know, it's just every day. I can't let a day go by without doing something connected with my writing. I literally, I'm constitutionally incapable of it. I have to work out every day. I have to hug my family every day and I have to write every day. It's just, you know, it's just chop wood, carry water. And I think that that's how you know what you're supposed to do in life. What is the thing that you're willing to do every day for the rest of your life and have fun doing it and feel blessed to have the opportunity to do it? Then the money just becomes a way of creating the space to do the thing that you love and you would have done anyway. Absolutely. I, I was trying to find this, this, this list of, of Thelonious Monk had this great list. Cause one of the things I've been, you know, ruminating on with my friend Omar Dorsey is a Thelonious Monk project. Mm. Um, yeah. You were talking about that three, four years ago. Well, one of the things that Monk, you know, says is that what was the one, okay. Stay in shape. Sometimes a musician waits for a gig when it comes, he's out of shape and can't make it, <laughs> you know? Wow. There it is. And then a, 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 another thing that Monk said that I always think about is you've got to dig it to dig it. You dig? <laughs> <laughs> Love, <very> it. Zen. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So I mean, it's very zen, but, but, it, but if you really understand what that means, he asked what he's talking about. Yes. You have to love what you do to find what you, to find the love of what you do. You know, mm. so you've got to dig it to dig it. You did. You have to. Sometimes you have to find the energy necessary to get something started. And then once you get started, you can get into the flow of it. And then you find the thing that you love. So the memory of having been there and the memory of what you want to achieve should get you out of bed in the morning. Why do, am I getting out of this nice, comfortable bed? It, oh, because I need to take care of my family, because I get to teach something, because I get to do something. If, if, if you've got the, the way to motivate yourself out of bed with the idea of what you might do during the day and then take joy from being able to start doing it, then you find your bliss in actually doing it. Yeah, absolutely. People who Writing wait is for inspiration, they never, you know, they, they can't, they, they can't be professionals. They're dilettantes. A professional has figured out how to make themselves get up at five 30 in the morning and go running. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, another, another, another great one of his is whatever you think can't be done. Somebody will come along and do it. A genius is the one most like himself. 
you know, you just have to just amidst all this, find what works for you and stick with it, you know? And, and also I, I think one of the keys, I mean, this is the thing that I've been trying to rediscover, honestly, what I've discovered because I've had, you know, I'm part of this generation with smartwatches where like I've, I've all, I've, ever since they've been introduced, I've, I've had them. And like, I, like I now have an Apple watch, but before I had, I can't remember the name of the watch, but like one that kind of tracks your sleep and everything. Like before show running, I used to average probably six, seven hours of sleep from 2015 until 2019, 2020, I was averaging four and a half hours of sleep. Mm-mm. And between that and an endless supply of Mexican Coca, you know, Coca-Cola and popcorn, it runs. It's terrible for your body. It's terrible. You know, I didn't understand the insidious nature of lack of sleep. Yes. You know, yes, the calories go up and down in terms of popcorn and drinking soda and everything else. That's bad enough. But the lack of sleep was the one that I didn't really realize. And that's one of the things that I've been working the hardest and it's the hardest to, to, to uncorrect. Because also because, you know, growing up an only child, even though I, I've, I've, I have a you know, half sister I'm extremely close with, but like I grew up an only child, you know. And so as a result, it's like you, that's when late at night is when I feel the most myself and just, you know, just I can think. But the problem is, is that it ruins your body. It ruins your mind. It ruins your health. I mean, like I always say about my my friend John Singleton, you know, he made movies for 25 years, but three years of snow, three seasons of snowfall killed him, you know, mm. because you have to take care of yourself. Yes. You, you know what I'm saying? It's 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 the hardest thing in the world to do because no one will tell you to do it. The problem with success is that. As beautiful as it is and as much as it changes your life and and having all these people that will make requests and eventually demands of you, which out of respect, absolutely you want at the same time, make no bones about it. They're not going to tell you to go to bed. They're not going to take you to take care of themselves because all they care about ultimately is the product itself. You're disposable to them. You're not disposable to yourself or your family. And you have- and that's the hardest thing to learn is that as as much as you're trying to make this deadline and put all this stuff out, they're not going to take time away from what they got to do with their family and, the, and their health before they sit down and read what, what what you do and how you do it. And so part of what you have to do, you have to build in the self-care into your process. You have to build in, you know, the the discipline will if you can do it correctly. And this is why I'm and I'm struggling to do this. So don't fit, don't. I'm not going to purport to have figured this out, but I'm trying to do this a better job at this. If you build in the self-care and the time into your process as part of the process, then you can figure out a way to meet all the different things that are happening and then ultimately get to the other end intact. It's not just about the product itself, you know, the script, the novel, whatever it is you're working on. You have to figure in that time because the most successful people that do it consistently, they do it. And the thing that I'm learning is that I'm tr- I'm trying to retrain myself as, as as somebody that goes to bed earlier so that I can be up early because that alone time that I crave, if I go to bed at nine and I'm getting up at three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, I have that alone time until it's time, you know, to get to get everybody to go to school and everything else, you know, or that you, you, I just have to you have to manage it differently. 
maybe this is this is now as I'm older. Like, you no, know, I think it's 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 wisdom. It's, it's wisdom. It's, you're you're it, saying, you know, to me, the, the greatest art form once you realize it is a life lived with dignity and grace. Mm-hmm. T. I'm really glad you brought this up, Cheo, because I remember the last time you talked to us for, really, it was for our screenwriting course. Now that I think about it, you talked about sleeping under the desk. Yeah. And when you mentioned it today, I was like, ooh, it kind of scared me a little bit because I worried about, you know, how much sleep you're getting. Did you have a specific wake up call that taught you that you need to integrate this as a part of your process? John was one. You know, I have a, another friend who, um, who, whose name I won't disclose just out of, out of privacy, you know, to their situation, who had a massive stroke, mm. you know, very successful show, but, you know, things happened health-wise where they delayed a procedure to kind of get through the season, have a procedure after, and then, you know, that happened. It's, 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 it's a wake-up call, you know, to integrate actual health as part of the job, you know, and, and, you know, and getting sleep and, and, you know, I think part of what it is, particularly with black men is that so few of us have had, it's not, I'm not just talking about those of us who grew up without dads like myself, but had father figures, even though so few of us have gotten to this age, it isn't like we have we we survive long enough to give each other the young younger our younger selves advice as to what to do and how to get there. I mean, you know, if you look at white people our age, they have entire industries dedicated to, you know, white middle aged leisure. <laughs> you know, not only is there golf, there's golf clothes, there's Tommy Bahama, there's all these different things about like you know, or the advice that that they're giving each other from everything from st- from stocks to well-being at the golf club. We, we try to do it at the barbershop, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, some of the other stuff about, Hey, watch your salt. Hey, make sure you get enough sleep. Hey, make sure that you're exercising. It's not, it's, you know, I think when you're 20 to 30, like if you look at all the Instagram influencers, you know, it's about like ego and it's about how you look when you get to, when you pass 40, 45, it's really about quality of life. Because the things that you're doing now, if you're not doing it financially, physically, the things that you do now in your 50s are going to determine how you are if you're lucky enough to get to your 70s and 80s. And you know, yes. I know that one of the biggest changes for me in terms of, let's say, martial arts, and I went all the way through my martial arts system. There's no more, you know, no, no more credentials to get there. And I'm not interested in starting over again doing something else because now it's, it's like I'm free in that sense. And one of the things that I've noticed is that the rule used to be, how hard can I push myself? Now it's how fully can I recover from something? Because you grow when you're recovering and the the amount of time it takes to recover changes as your body ages. And if you notice that, if you have some indicators, like like I'm not sleeping fully, I don't wake up in the morning feeling completely rested. What does that even mean? You know, what are my indicators of health? Health over fitness. You know, mm-hmm. like the, the, what the Russians have something called the, the three uh, three dimensional performance pyramid, where it goes from first you take care of your health, then you know I think that let's add another one: take care of your emotional health first, mm-hmm. then your physical health, then fitness, then skill, then performance. 
And the weekend athlete remembers that they never used to have to work out. They could just go out and play basketball. So they, they, they go out and play ball all weekend. And then on Monday, they feel like death. They feel oh, they pull their the body, they tore their bodies <laughs> apart. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's that at some point you realize you either get the wisdom or you burn out. And you're right. We need to, we need to share this. You know, it's, it's like, you know, a lot of black people, if you grew up poor, you're going to have negative attitudes about money, about what it means to have money, that only bad people have money. Because how else are you going to protect yourself from the fact that you love your mom and dad and they're brilliant and wonderful and loving, but they're broke? Well, mm-hmm. it must be that money only comes to bad people. You have to clean yourself, constantly question what do I believe to be true? And why do I believe that it's true? And is it true? How do I test this? And if this isn't true, then what is? I'm, I'm so glad that we're recording this conversation, Shale, mm-hmm. because this now becomes an eternal record that people will find, you know, and, and people who would like to know how did Shale become Shale? You mm-hmm. know, what is this? You're talking about what you've learned now that, you know, that's the question I want to ask. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, and give mm-hmm. just a couple. Give that younger man just a couple pieces of advice. What would you tell him? <laughs> oh, besides actually the money that I spent on my Apple laptop to actually take that to buy Apple stock instead. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's right. I mean, you know, but, but, but besides that one, you ain't never lied about well, that. that you no, know, that's financial. Uh, that's good. That's I mean, of life. It, it would it would ultimately be about like I, I think I would have just discovered running earlier. I, I used to hate running. I, you know, I, I, I ran track in high school and I was a high, I was a high jumper, but the actual act of, I mean, that, that man, that warm up mile, it was the dread of, I dreaded it. It was the bane of my existence. And it wasn't until recently, it wasn't until a year and a half ago when I finally, cause I had flat feet and I got hocus. I mean, hocus wouldn't have existed back then, but I would have said, find it when you actually find a shoe that really fits for real, then the running part becomes a meditative thing that will permeate every positive aspect of your life. Amen. And really, it doesn't have to be running because, you know, I'm not saying, you know, running is the only way to do it. But when you can find that thing that keeps you focused and keeps you healthy it has a way of blending into your writing and blending into everything else that you're working on and it's and it's as as important a part of the process as as everything else because when you start looking at the people like why are they more successful you know it's not just luck it's because they're doing something with their discipline different than what you're doing it has nothing to do with talent because your talent you know I think is, is, is matched or is untapped. And that's why I think it's so important to recognize that, that if you do the things, if you have the discipline to match certain things, you are only going to get the benefits of that on the other end, you know? And, and so, and so I, I think that that that's really important. It's like, it's a certain belief in self and having the understanding that it's, it's not the amount of words or the amount of pages that you pr- that you produce. It's the consistency. Because even if you even as if, if you look at all these different workout programs and apply that to writing, the workout programs honestly, the reason that you're doing the reps is because the more you do the reps consistently, it's guaranteed that you'll lose the weight that the muscle will build. You know what I'm saying? And with writing, it's the same way. 
It's just the consistency. It's not just the movements, you know, because your body will look different if you do 75 to 100 push-ups or sit-ups a day consistently, as opposed to just doing 100 sit-ups and then five weeks from not doing another 100 sit-ups. Look, it's, man, it's like you, you can do 25 every single day. And, mm-hmm. and over time, it's the, yes. everything else will erode and shape. And your writing is the same way. So what like you're saying is your rituals determine your destiny. Yes. And Show so me I, what it is you do every day, day after day, without being motivated outside yourself, and I will show you what your life is going to be. And you yeah. can you can change. Well, well absolutely. So I, I think to to people that are aspiring writers, because you know, and I, I learned some of this from Walter Mosley, honestly. You know, mm-hmm. Walter has a great master class, but I'm lucky enough to to you know to be working with Walter and and Walter and. Walter Mosley and his producing partner, Diane Houseland, are, are really close friends of mine, as well as Gary Phillips. But Walter specifically is a morning writer and he gets up really early and he writes between a certain time from the time he wakes up to a certain time. And that's and he protects that time. And then that allows him to come out with all these every year. There's, there's a different Walter Mosley novel with a different character. And allows them to do that. It also allows them to do incredible things like the, the incredible episodes of Snowfall, you know, that he's done. And that's where you find the time. Stephen King, like everybody has their own thing. And so you're going to have people that listen to this that are saying, well, I, I would be a writer if I had the time or if I could do this. Or if I could. OK, the thing is, is that like even when you do it professionally, you don't find the time. But I know personally, I do find the time to take a shower every day. I do find the time to brush my teeth. And so I find the time to eat something, even if I'm on the run. So all you need is 15 or 20 minutes because you're you're not going to work on the weekend. You're not going to do those three or four hour stretches. You're not going to do it. But don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to the project that you're trying to get done. It's just not going to happen. But what you can do is with seven to 10 minutes in the morning or Three to five minutes, like while you're eating lunch, even if you have to, you know, take it. And there's no shame in taking a day gig if, if, if you're trying to do this to get things going. You know, you will find that little brainstorm that you put somewhere. And when you are able to save those little snippets, they add up. It's, you know, like I, I just saw this incredible documentary. It's been out there for a while. The, the, Tony, the, the Tony Morrison documentary, I think it's on Netflix is, is where I saw it. And it was this great moment where people didn't realize that Toni Morrison was almost as influential a book editor as she was, you know, in a novelist. And one of the books that she edited was Angela Davis's, you know, autobiography. And so Angela Davis tells a story while like amidst Toni Morrison raising two boys on her own. And helping Angela channel this book, you know, writing this autobiography at 28, despite all the things she'd lived through, she would she, she would see Tony like write a couple of things down or a sentence here or a sentence there. And she didn't realize until years later when she's reading Song of Solomon. Wait a minute. I remember when she wrote that down, the little snippet that she wrote on the back of piece of paper. That line is in the book or that moment is in the book. And so Tony had a day job. You know, and even while her day job was editing other novelists, she still found these little pockets of time. And she also talks about this in the, in the doc where she gets up early and, and finds that that those hour and a half, two hours early, you know, because that's really going to be the only time you do it. And then that's when you apply. And that's how you do it. And she writes longhand. So you know, 
you know, thank it's, you it's, for that, Teo, because that really our life writing podcast and one of the principles of our life writing course is a sentence a day is the minimum. That's your minimum. Toward yeah, your everybody's got time to write a sentence a day. If you're not writing a sentence a day, you are lying to yourself about wanting to be a writer. You know, so if you, and if you can do that, you will leverage yourself into doing more. So that's where we begin. You know, with your kind indulgence, we'd like to talk about the the sponsor of this of this podcast, which is our fire dance course, which is the building of a morning ritual, which is to 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 move your body, to visualize the results, to chant affirmations at the same time you're moving is called an incantation. So it's to build something that only takes between five and twenty minutes a day, and that's your minimum. You will give yourself this every day. This is to you know if if if, if writing is your thing, write at least one sentence every day, and you do not let that day go by. You do a certain amount of small amount of meditation just to center yourself in your heart, or you do you you make sure to tell the people that you love that you love them. You make sure to to rinse yourself, to flood yourself with positive emotions by visualizing your blessings, visualizing what is good about your life so that you can believe that your, your efforts today will lead to something positive. And the what Chao has been talking about in terms of building, he's talking about how to build a world-class career, but it starts with just taking the scraps of your ideas, connecting with your heart, connecting with the things that you believe. And slowly, if you have a day job, you have to have a day job. Great. Fantastic. You, you work your way into it one step at a time. And the, the fire dance program is set up to do that using Tai Chi, but you could do it while you're running. You could do it any number of different things. And if you'll take a look at it at www.firedancetaichi.com, You'll see, and then we have a, a community that meets on Saturdays via Zoom where we brainstorm and network. It's it's so critical to give that little kid inside your heart some sense that the things you're doing in your day are in alignment with your values. You're going someplace you want to go. You're giving to the world something. And what Che was talking about, how there are some communities like Black men who do not have the kind of support that they should have. And there are many other disadvantaged communities or people who don't have black women, those the black women, you know, mm-hmm. gays and so many other groups. How do I connect in a way to, to feel like somebody's got my back? Somebody else understands what I'm going through. And you need to build that for yourself. If and- you listen to this broadcast again about how did Chao build this network of positive thinking, successful men and women who are telling him what their life experience is like so he knows where he is on the map of his life. Cheo, you honestly, this is no not blowing smoke of your skirt. You have been one of the best guests we've ever had. Thank you. And we've Thank had you. a lot of great guests. We've had a lot of great guests, but there's something about the way you perceive and the way you express yourself that is just so beneficial to us and also our community of listeners. So thank you very much for that. We have our dog barking outside. So those of you who, who listen to this podcast a lot know that we have the craft program, which is lifewritingpremium.com. But the in terms of the vessel, the body and the mind, the body mind connection. Fire Dance Tai Chi is the way to go. So check out www.firedancetaichi.com. Cheo, is there anything you want to mention that you are doing or any last piece of advice you want to give our listeners? Well, I, you know, I think the most, you know, the thing is, is I'm in, I'm here in Seattle. I'm coming down to, to LA. I'm going to pick it on Thursday. And then at the same time, I'm trying to start 
organizing. I, I talked with the guild yesterday. I'm going to start organizing the, the, some of the same movements here in Seattle and, and maybe in Portland, you know, because there are a lot of writers that ge- that geographically aren't or aren't able, particularly because finances are tight to travel to the front lines in New York or in L.A., but still are a part of what's happening with the strike. Um, and I think it's important to a support it, you know, and uh, you know, beyond getting into the politics of, of anything else, I, I just want to express to all of us that are going through this period of time as people that are striking, as people on strike, to not let this process and not let the discipline of striking and everything else rob us of the joy of that these companies are not compensating us for, which is our writing itself. And so you can't lose, despite the busyness of all the organizing and everything that we're doing, you still, like I said, beyond, even though pencils are down, does not, that does not mean that you can't keep pencils sharp. And you still, you still have to find that part of the process that keeps you alive as a writer. And because remember, like, you know, some of the shows, I, 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 I think it was The Shield and a few other shows. No, it wasn't The Shield. It, there were shows that were kind of written during this period where people were able to just finally have some quiet for their ideas and work on things from the standpoint of just even as an exercise that they were able to do once this thing was over to, to do that. Or if it's, it's just, it's not even about that. It's just really just whether it's journaling or, or whatever it is that keeps your mind focused in that kind of flow state, you have to find time for that. And then at the same time, also health is important because this action, this process is, I hate to use the metaphor again, it's a marathon. I don't mm-hmm. think that these companies have it in their best interest to shorten this, you know, this process and they're going to prolong it needlessly. And so mm-hmm. we have to be prepared for that in terms of our enthusiasm and our stamina, because the one thing I also learned from running a marathon is that the energy that you expend in mile four, you're going to wish you had a mile 24. So you have to, there definitely has to be a pace and, and, you know, it's been great seeing, you know, everybody like, you know, like the, the different pickets in terms of the theme pickets and everything else, but come July, come August, come September, and hopefully it will not go that long. We also have to make sure that as reserves and everything else that that we are fresh and that, you know, that we're focused and that we are ready to take this all the way because they're going to test our resolve. And I don't think they understand from a writing standpoint and from writers in general, just how resilient we are and how organized and how focused we are and how important this is. You know, I know that people are also kind of talking about the AI of it all and chat GPT replacing writers. And I've yet to see a computer get a, get an actor out of a trailer. So I'm not, it's not really that as much as understand that this has happened before when photography became popular, there was the thought amongst artists that wait a minute, like art is now obsolete portrait drawing portraits is obsolete, you know, Capturing reality is obsolete, but instead what it did was it opened up people like Picasso and a lot of abstract artists say, wait a minute. Okay. So now that photography exists that can capture absolute reality, I'm going to go somewhere else with my art. 
I'm going to expand yes. my art in, in, in different directions and open it up and things that can't be produced, you know, or, or readily recreated so easily. And I think this, and I think that that's the other thing to kind of, you know, that as this new reality happens, we have to find ways to innovate. And that's only going to come from within. That's only going to come from fostering our creativity, even during as tough a period as this is right now. Beautiful, beautiful. Absolutely. Preach, warrior. <laughs> They're messing with the wrong ones. They are messing with the wrong ones. They don't even know yet. We, we are for us. We yeah. are picketing for the future. You know, some people yeah. aren't going to have jobs outside of this strike. Some people are going to lose their guild membership because of the strike and have a hard time getting back in. It is tough to maintain membership in the WGA. But everyone on that picket line, from the top showrunners to a writer who just got in, we are all picketing for the future of this industry and for writers of the future. And, and that is beautifully put. Chael, thank you so much thank for you. joining us on the Life Writing Podcast. Everyone, I hope you're as inspired as I am to go out and make yourself the hero or heroine of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Take Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Hadari. Bye-bye. Thank, Thank you, again. you. Woo! That was amazing. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life. <laughs>